The sermon text today is Isaiah chapter 46, verses 1 through 13. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, does it not answer? It does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion. For Israel, my glory. I asked you the question last week, how well do you know God? I mean, what kind of thoughts do you have about God? And when you, when you think about, how would you explain him? What would some of the words that you would use to describe God? That's how I kind of started last week. I'd ask you again, what do you, what do you think about God? A lot of us have, um, when we try to explain him, we explain him in our, in our kind of human terms. So Martin Luther was a reformer of the 16th century, and he was seeking to reform the Catholic Church. And he would be in back-and-forth debates with a man by the name of Erasmus. He was a scholar of Renaissance literature, a theologian. And they debated over the nature of freedom, freedom of the will. But in one of his letters of correspondence, he said to Erasmus, he said, your thoughts of God are far too human. They're far too human. And it really is similar to the way that God chided Israel in Psalm 50. He says, you thought that I was altogether such as one as yourself. You know, oftentimes we think about God using human terms. We kind of project ourselves into God. It really leaves us in a, a dangerous position, particularly in times of difficulty. So I'd like to open up a conversation with you. Uh, something that I think um, can be very heavy, very difficult, may feel like a, like a boulder on your chest in terms of its weightiness, like it may be a thousand feet underwater, but I think it's life-giving. I think it's joy-producing. I want to speak about God's sovereignty. We're going through the attributes of God. We looked at God's goodness last week. We want to look at God's sovereignty today. I think many of us, when we really get a full dose of sovereignty, it's hard to believe, and yet when you hear it, you want to believe it. 
because it produces joy in the midst of greatly difficult times. So we'll be speaking about God's sovereignty. I'll follow the same pattern I did last week. What is God like? And, and where do we see this attribute of God? And then how do we respond to it? So what is he like? Where do we see it? And how are we going to respond to it? So what is God like? Well, we saw that God is not like these gods, Bel and Nebo. Look with me at one and two. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols uh, are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens, as weary beasts. They cannot save themselves, but go into captivity. God is mocking these false gods. He's mocking them. He says, not only can they not win, they can't defeat, but not only they're being carried into captivity, they can't even walk into captivity on their own. These gods are unable to save themselves. They're unable to even walk themselves into captivity. But then he goes on. Look with me at 6 and 7. He says, those who, lavish, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and make it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it up on their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Isn't that amazing? God continues the mockery, saying they can't create anything. They have to be created. And to create them, you need to fund it. And it needs to be fashioned by a goldsmith. can't go on its own. You've got to carry it. And if you put it down, it can't move. If you've got problems and you want to cry to it, it can't respond to you. can't save you from any trouble. And this is the nature of false gods. When we're putting our hope and our joy in the things of this world, in created things, they can't save us. They can't help us. They can't deliver us. So God's not like this. If you ask the question, what is God like? He's not like these idols, no doubt. Well, he tells us what he's like. Look in verse 5, because God draws this point of comparison. He says, God asks, to whom will you liken me and make me equal or compare me? I mean, what God's doing, he's saying, compare me to these gods. They cannot create, I create. They cannot carry you, I carry you, even from your birth. Look at 3 and 4. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, I will save. Uh, th these are the, this is the identity of a great God, a God who gives life, who saves life, who carries, who bears, who endures. This is what God is revealing himself to be. But he goes on, not just is he a good God as we saw last week, a creating God, a bearing God, but we also see that he's a sovereign God. Look with me at 8, 9, and 10. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. So he's talking to the people of Israel. Wake up as to who I am. He says, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, Things that not, were not yet done say, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God's just simply saying here that I am absolutely, radically unique. There, there is no other competitor. There's no rival. There's no close second. There's no governor that's almost as good. God is absolutely unique in being God. All the other gods are false gods. Now, when it says that he knows the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, he knew those things that were not yet done. Well, what's he saying here? 
Is he saying he's kind of a fortune teller, looking in kind of a crystal ball, a palm reader? No, he's saying, I know the end that has not yet come because I'll fashion the end. He says, my counsel shall stand. My purposes will be accomplished. God's not just looking down the hall of, of time to tell us what's happening. He's fashioning it. He's accomplishing it. He has a plan. He has a purpose for every single inhabitant in his world. He is purposing things towards the end that he wants. This is what sovereignty is. Sovereignty is being ruler over great and small, good and evil. This is what he's declaring himself to be. A.W. Pink wrote a lot about the attributes of God. And here's how he describes God. He says, what do we mean by this expression, sovereignty of God? Well, we mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven or among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay his hand. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the Almighty, possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only God, King of kings and Lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. Now, of course, Charles Spurgeon has to come in here and add to the mix. He does it in his beautifully elegant way. He says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit just as the sun does in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The fall of the leaf from the poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. This is the sovereignty of God. He rules over great, and he rules over small. He rules over good, and he rules over evil. Does this comfort you, or does this challenge you? you know, for many, you might take comfort in this, that God is good. We just saw that last week. And he's sovereignly leading us as a good father. But for some of you, this may be a challenge. It may be a challenge. I, I know many people who are challenged by this, they believe in God. They believe that God's created all things and that he's sustaining all things. And they, they like it, the fact that he's, you know, we're keeping the place going. Don't like the hurricanes and the tornadoes too much. But, but generally, we're pretty happy with the way he's running things. But when you bring up this kind of sovereignty, this kind of rulership, we begin to bristle. We begin to push back. Our, our backs bow up a little bit. We don't want a God that is so sovereign. We want a God who's sovereign when things are going great. We don't want a God who's sovereign when he's beginning to tell us how to live, to call us to obedience, or to do things in dark ways of which we don't understand. We don't like that kind of God. An author kind of said, when God ascends his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. We don't like it. This is the allure of idolatry. Idolatry is we get to pick our gods. We get to move our gods. We get to carry them with us. We get to look at them. We get to have them with us. But let me remind you, it's absurd to follow the false gods. Now remember, when I say false gods, I'm not talking about wood and stone. I'm talking about the things that you love, those things that you find most important, those things that you think you need to have to be happy, 
those things that you're in fear of losing. You're terrified of losing them. It's the loves of your heart. It's those things closest to you. You know, in Ezekiel 14, 3, uh, God warns Ezekiel, he says, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. In other words, it's the things that control our thoughts. They drives our spending. It might be food. It might be people. It might be a spouse. It might be success. It might be political parties. It might be political platforms or candidates. It can be all these things. We put our hope in them. If you turn nervously to CNN or Fox News, what's the latest news we're going to hear? The political world. Maybe you've gotten a little too bound up in this election cycle forgetting that he is the sovereign one overall. Now let me give you four questions. I, mean, I got these from a blog in terms of are our hearts too caught up and too trusting in the things uh, that Donald Trump, the Joe Biden, we're, we're putting too much hope in them. Let me ask you these questions. Do you expect the president to satisfy something for you that you believe Jesus has failed to satisfy? Do you get more worked up when someone speaks ill of your candidate than when someone speaks ill of Christ? Do you feel more fundamentally aligned with a non-Christian who aligns with your political party than with a church member who votes different than you? Will it be impossible for you to experience the outcome of this election without being overly elated or, and euphoric if your candidate wins or devastated and destroyed if they lose? Let me remind you of the implications of this text and the times that we live in. You do recognize that God's sovereignty is a political statement. It's a political reality. God is a king, and he has a kingdom. We are inhabitants in his world. Now, we may vote and do our little elections every four years. He's always reigning. He won't be voted out. He won't be voted in. He rules all things. This is of incredibly important truth for us to gain. Regardless of who fills the White House, God reigns over all. As I think Napoleon Bonaparte said, man proposes, but God disposes. God makes the final determination on these things. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, well, these are bold statements, Tom. Where do we see these things? I mean, how, how can you prove these things? Oh, so what is God like? He's sovereign. He's, he's ruler over great and small, over good and over evil. Where do I see these things? Well, let me give you a few of them. Just generally speaking now, you see God's sovereignty in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God created natural laws. He created laws by which our world operates. But he also sustains those natural laws. Because in the psalmist, he says that even God causes the grass to grow. But God rules over these laws, so he can cause the, the Red Sea to part. He can cause the axe head to float. He can cause the sun to stand still, or to go back as it did in Isaiah 38. That he can cause a man and men to be placed in fire and not be burned. He can put a man among lions who are hungry, and they go tame. God is sovereign over all his creation. In fact, in Psalm 135, he says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. God's sovereign over all of creation, all of nature. God's also sovereign over natural evil, 
over those things that are part of the fall related to tornadoes, hurricanes. He's sovereign over those things. The calamities that we grieve over. God may not cause those, but he's sovereign over them. So in Amos chapter 3, he says, does, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Those are not outside of God's sovereign hand. He can stop the tornado or he may not stop, but he's sovereign over the events of his world. And not just natural evil, but even the deformity, the disease, the things that we can't get our minds around. He asks Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God is even sovereign over these things. I know this is difficult. This is where you begin to feel the weight of sovereignty. Can he really be? It's, it's interesting. When we hit bad things, we, don't want to th- we struggle with God's sovereignty. And yet he is saying that he's sovereign even over these difficult things. And not just natural evil, but moral evil. The things done by men to men. This moral evil. This Now, this doesn't mean that we are not culpable. It doesn't mean that we're not responsible. That God's sovereignty over moral evil doesn't preclude or exclude our responsibility. But he's still sovereign over it. Doesn't cause it. I mean, you think about for a minute, the greatest moral evil was the crucifixion of the Son of Man. And yet God is sovereign in that. In Acts chapter 4, Truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel. So he's just gotten everybody involved to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see God's sovereignty being exercised even in the crushing of his own son. God is sovereign over all moral evil. This is a heavy stone. But when we talk about God being creator, ruler over all things, we know that he's sovereign over all things. And and not just natural evil and creation and moral evil, but he's even sovereign over the nations. And you see that in our text. Look with me at verse 11. He says, I call a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and will bring it to pass. I have purposed and will do it. This is really an interesting verse here. Uh, Who is this bird of prey? Well, most likely the bird of prey is Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now, the Jews have been taken into captivity in Babylon. And what God is saying is, I will raise up Cyrus, a wicked king, to crush the Babylonian empire to bring my people to freedom. I'm going to use a wicked king to deliver my people. I'm going to use a wicked king to achieve my purposes. Notice that he's called Cyrus. He's called a man after my counsel, a man doing my bidding. I mean, do you get what this is saying here? This would have bent the minds of the nation of Israel. How could God use someone so wicked to achieve ends that are so good? Because he's sovereign. It doesn't matter whether it's Donald Trump or it's Joe Biden. These these men are instruments, just like Cyrus was an instrument in the hand of God to achieve God's purposes. God will bring deliverance through all kinds of various means and measures. It's not up to us to determine you can only use this person or this type of character. God uses people at his disposal for good ends. 
It's hard to believe. But I'm calling you to trust that God is sovereign even over the elections of this nation. Who will be president? Who will not be president? God's sovereign in that. He's not just sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over salvation. Notice what he raises Cyrus up to do, to deliver Israel. He's going to bring salvation. He's going to bring the people of Israel from captivity back to the land that he promised, back to his rest. This is a foretaste of what God was going to do. He used this unexpected king like Cyrus to achieve salvation, just like he's going to raise up a son and bring another unexpected king without sin to bring a people to salvation. This is really a picture of what Christ was coming to do, that he would raise up Christ, he would deliver us from captivity to sin and guilt and shame and to save us. This is a picture, God giving us a picture of how he will sovereignly lead us to salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Nobody will come into a right, right relationship on their own. Salvation belongs to God. He calls us to himself. We repent. We believe. We put our trust into him. And we find salvation to be very near. His righteousness will come near to us. So, so we see what God is like. He's sovereign. And, and where do we see this? Everywhere. Now, I'm sure that some of you right now are kind of thinking in your mind, well, hold on, this sounds kind of fatalistic. It sounds deterministic. I mean, really? Well, let me hear me clearly on this. You know, the sovereignty of God does not deny the action of men and women. Our choices matter. This is what philosophers call compatibilism. Compatibilism is where things are mutually compatible. Even though we don't understand how they relate to one another, they are compatible with one another. God's sovereignty in driving this creation to purposes that he has designed is in coordination with human responsibility. You saw this last week in the story of Joseph. They intended it for evil. God intended it for good. God's ends were achieved without overriding the responsibility of men and women. You see it incredibly in Luke twenty-two, twenty-two. It's one verse, and the verse is this, that the, Jesus says, the Son of Man will go as it's been decreed. God has determined that the Son of Man would die. But woe, Jesus says, to the man who betrays him, human responsibility. But woe to the man who betrays him. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. In the same verse, from the mouth of our Lord, without all kinds of diff, without all this philosophical explanation behind it. So it just exists. But you see it in the cross, as I just mentioned. In Acts 2.23, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. This is incredible. This compatibilism, they both exist. So it's not fatalism. It is mysterious, though, no doubt. It's very confusing. You, you know, have you ever seen the path of a tornado? Uh, you know, where, where two houses are completely destroyed, and then the next house, nothing. And then the house on the other side is flat like a pancake. And you're, it, it's hard to understand the sovereignty of God in real time. It's difficult to discern all of his ways. We know that heaven is good. We know that, that, that hell is evil, but on earth it's good and evil. It, it's hard to discern all of his ways. Thomas Watson was a 17th century English divine, and he said, only God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. 
Only God can bring something straight out of something that seems to us to be so crooked. You may still be struggling in your minds with me right now. This can't be true. God can't be the sovereign, good and evil together. God using evil. How does this all work? God can't be sovereign over evil, you say. Well, let me ask you, what is your alternative? What do we have? God's indifferent? God doesn't have the power? Open theism? He wants to do it. He didn't know about it. He would have done something if he could have. Or is evil sovereign? Or is evil random? It is insanity to think that you can live in a world where evil is random. You know, about 15 years ago, um, Tommy and Katie, two of my three children, were watching a softball game over at NRCA. And the two fields, is a baseball field and a, well, two baseball fields, are playing softball on one. They're adjacent, one to the other. Uh, but the softball field where Katie and Tommy were sitting, many of you know this, it happened years ago, many of you don't know this, but the, the, the stands have their backs to the outfield of the other field. And, uh, and during this game, uh, two games going on, they're watching the girls' softball, the boys' baseball, the guy hits a home run, just a line shot over the wall, and hits Tommy right in the head. Knocks him out, gets a concussion, bleeding in the brain, begins to have... These seizures and went on for maybe two years. Many of you walked with us through this, and we sure did. We were grateful to the church in those days. But we're having seizures. We didn't know what was happening. Now, I had to deal with that, thinking through it theologically. They did put a net up the next day. That, that was interesting to me. It could have been put up the day before, but it wasn't. And I had to deal and reconcile, how do I think theologically if God is sovereign? I believed that he did guide that ball. It was not out of his plan. It was not out of his will. And so I shared that one Sunday, that I believe God was sovereign even over the flight of that ball. A woman came up to me aghast that I would say that. How can you attribute that to God? And I said, well, does God not care? Well, no, of course he cares. I said, well, um, is evil sovereign? Is evil random? What, what kind of world do you, do you want to live in if God isn't sovereign? I want God sovereign over evil because then I know it's going to achieve good and right purposes. It's not just going to in some random direction. We have to believe that God is evil. Even in these difficult times when we don't understand it, it brought me great comfort to know that God himself knows what's happening. He will guide things to their end, to their good end, for purposes of which perhaps I cannot understand right now, but I will understand, and I'll give him thanks for it. It really leads us to see what God is like. He's sovereign. What's he sovereign over? All things. So how do we respond to this? What might our response be to this kind of sovereign God? Well, the first thing I would say is look at verse 8. He says, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. I'm asking you with me to contemplate the nature of God. He is God. There is no other. He is absolutely unique. He knows the end from the beginning. His counsel will stand. His purposes will be accomplished. 
This is the kind of God that he has revealed himself to be. I'm asking you to contemplate this. I'm asking you even to look at these elections. So many of us are so not, a, you need to think theologically. What is God doing in the midst of these adverse times? Is he sovereign or not? We need to remember, we need to recall, God is sovereign over all things. R.C. Sproul once said that there is no maverick molecule. If one molecule is maverick, then he's not sovereign. And we have no idea what's coming. But he knows the end from the beginning because he's bringing it there and he's causing it to happen through human agents who are responsible. So remember this. Contemplate it. You know, the rhetoric around this election has been if one's elected, then we're going to just lose our Bibles and guns, and if another's elected, there's going to be civil unrest. People, not one sparrow is going to fall to the ground apart from his will. And how much more important are you? We have to think this way. This is where I'm calling you to faith, calling you to believe. Do you believe it or not? Sovereignty is great for a theological concept, but it's very practical, or it should be. Abraham Kuyper, you know, he was a theologian. He was the uh, Prime Minister of, of the Netherlands, and at the inaugural address of um, the Free University in Amsterdam, he gave these words, many of you know it. He says, there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. It's his. It's all his right here. Brat, this biographer, a recent biographer of him, he wrote these words. He says, what he was saying was this. You've never seen anything in your life that God did not create. So everything you've seen to this point in your life, he created it all. And Christ is intimately involved in upholding in existence the very things in your field of vision right now. He's upholding it all right now. That's what it means to be sovereign over great and small, over good, and he, he's sovereign over it all. We're called to believe this. So recall to your mind, remember, don't forget, think theologically, God being sovereign. Uh, secondly, rest and take comfort in this truth. I mean, rest in his sovereignty. He will accomplish the purposes for his people. Listen, in Ephesians 1.11, Paul writes, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything in the life of the believer, they're all being guided and directed to accomplish his purposes in your life. And, and the purpose is that you will obtain an inheritance. You will have God. I remember this. I think John Piper took an illustration from R.C. or uh, from J.C. Ryle, and uh, he kind of morphed it for his own. But I'll use what he said. He said, "Imagine for a minute that you are given an inheritance of a huge estate, of great wealth and great comfort, and you're taking your carriage to claim this vast estate that will be yours. And about three miles from arriving, the carriage breaks down, the wheel falls off." And the carriage won't go any further. Are you going to start complaining that things aren't working well? No, you're going to get out. You're going to start walking. And you're going to may have to walk through some difficult terrain. Will you be happy doing it? Will you be excited? Will you push yourself? Absolutely. There will be joy in the midst of adversity because of what you have coming. That is what he means when he says, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. 
the joy of that life pours back into this life. Not making it wealth and health and prosperity now, but giving us a joy because of what we will have. The sovereignty of God and his promises to you are to push joy into today. We can be happy today, regardless who ends up being declared victor in the electoral college. Third, behave like he's sovereign. Can we behave like he's sovereign? In other words, in 1 Peter 2.17, this is such a clear word for us. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Honor everyone. Uh, people, in this time of election, as things are still shaking out, Biden's being declared uh, president-elect, honor people in the way that we speak. Take issue with policies all day long, but don't demonize people. It does no good to demonize one another. Honor everyone, he says. Honor in the way that we speak, in the way that we carry ourselves in, in conversation on social media. The Word of God declares us to honor everyone. Why? Because we fear God. That's why. Not, are they always deserving? Probably not. Will they return the favor to you? Probably not. But we fear God. And that's how we display our trust in God, is we honor everyone. Because you've all been made in the image of God. And he also says, honor the king. Honor the king. We will pray for the president. We prayed for President Trump in this projected president-elect Joe Biden, pray for him. We want him to do well. Remember, God is the sovereign one. It's amazing in Proverbs 21, he says, the king's heart is in the stream of, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whichever way he will. Blessed is the name of God forever and ever, Daniel says, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and season. He removes kings and he sets them up. We want to pray for them. The reason we honor the king, regardless of political party, is because we fear God and we believe in his sovereign hand. And so we will pray for them, each and every one. And then last, I would say, submit to this sovereignty. Submit yourself to God's sovereignty. In other words, it, it doesn't matter who, ultimately. Ultimately, now listen, I know that different candidates elected to different positions can bring about an enormous wave of, of problems or benefits to us. I get it. I get that there are real, temporal um, adversities, perhaps. All I mean to say is that God remains sovereign over those things, and for us in those things. We want to submit to God's sovereignty. Think about Job for a minute. Tyler raised this in our sermon discussion. Think about Job for a minute. You know, Job faced moral evil. He faced natural evil. He faced a slew of problems. He lost his family. He lost his estate. He lost his body, sores on his body. And for 37 chapters, everybody's questioning God. Everybody's wondering about God. Well, chapter 38, and you can read that whole book in about an hour and 45 minutes. In chapter 38, things changed. God begins to question. In fact, I would say it became more of an interrogation, but you would be wise to read it as instruction. And he begins to ask Job, so where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? 
Where were you when I told the morning to go and stand? Where were you when I brought snow out of my storehouses? And he begins in 38, 39, 40, and 41. He just questions Job. It's a, it's a piece. It's magisterial work. Where were you? Who were you? And then here's what Job came to. He says, I know that you can do all things. And no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It's what we've been saying the whole time. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. People, we need to humble ourselves before God. Last thing I need to do is fear who is in the White House. I want to fear God. He can kill the body and the soul, and that's who we fear. So we submit to him with joy because he's good. That's why we saw the goodness of God, and now we see the sovereignty of God. So let's take a moment and just ask God for grace to stand with head lowered before him, trusting him. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.